This show is part of the Goblin Broadcast Network, mate. You probably knew that, though. Step through the twilight lands with me. Through the darkening sunlight, come with me. If you let your eyes adjust, you'll follow the light of the old ones. They've come to dance with the straight tracks. It isn't far to go. You're walking along with me now. I'm guiding the way. This is my land. My domain. The Bear's Grove, they call this place. Sacred it is to life and light. See the tower with the standard of the Golden Bear? Come past Forge and Well. Mine and Spire. Come now into the hall they built of old. The old stories crowd round the firelight, waiting to be told. Be welcome round this hearth and hold. Be welcome to this place. You are once again listening to the Bears Grove podcast. My name is Sam Chupp. I'm your host. And before we get to our podcast, I'd like to give you a few news and notes. I wanted to let you know that the very next podcast, number 10, will be our special superhero role-playing game podcast, complete with a little radio serial and everything. So you can look forward to that. You may have noticed that the sound has improved a little. This is due to the gift of a lovely Samson CO1U microphone. It's a USB microphone, and it plugs directly into my computer here in the secret broadcasting bunker deep underneath the grove. I really love it, although it can be a bit cantankerous at times. I will be also looking forward to having a microphone stand for it and a pop filter eventually. Until then, you're just going to have to put up with some plosives, as long as they're not explosives, right? Oh god, that was terrible. I am in the process of finding some folks to interview in the gaming industry. If any of you are gaming industry professionals and you'd like to be interviewed, let me know. I have Skype, and I am not afraid to use it. I'm also looking for a female gamer who might want to be a guest columnist. I would love to hear about storytelling and role-playing from a female's point of view. Mer Lafferty does an excellent job with Geek Fu Action Grip, but a lot of her podcasts don't deal with RPGs directly. So if anyone is out there but would prefer not to set up her own podcast, I'll be glad to give you a spot on my show. If, however, you just need help getting set up, please let me know. I'll be glad to help you. I wanted to mention that I had a, an audio comment on a Podcast 411 show just recently. In case you're new to podcasting, Podcast 411 is a podcast about podcasting. I hardly recommend it to you. My comment is on the February 4th edition of that podcast. And just in case we have any listeners who started listening as a result of that, please let me know. I'd love to hear that. Thanks. Our iTunes listeners may have noticed that the Bears Grove now comes with an explicit tag. This is for a good reason. Basically, I wanted to stop worrying about whether or not I could talk about adult themes and topics without having to worry about kids. I do care what kids get to listen to, and I think that it's important to keep some stuff out of kids' hands. 
That said, I think you as a parent should decide what your kid hears. So let me help you out by putting an explicit tag on my show. It may never get quite so racy as all that, but I am going to delve a bit deeper into other areas of storytelling and role-playing that deal with more mature themes. So now I have a bit more leeway. Of course, if any of you have children who might be interested in starting their own gaming podcast, please let me know. I'll be more than willing to help out any way I can. The show we have for you today, I am uh, kind of combining the kids section and the bears growl today, so be careful, there's a rant there. In the game design tools section, we'll talk about wikis and mind maps. Our special feature this time is a guest column from my friend Alan Braden uh, called Brokeback Balrog about being gay and a role player at the same time. So I expect uh, all of you to make Alan feel welcome. Finally, in our religion and gaming section, I'll talk a little bit about the religions that populate my game world like I promised oh so very long ago, like last year. Um, but first, I'd like to play a promo for the Griffin's Guide to the Galaxy podcast. You have entered the realm of the Griffin's Guide. Learn role-playing tips from Sly. I want to cast Magic Missile. I'm attacking the darkness. <laughs> Catch up on the latest conspiracy theories. I can't not as long as the truth is out there. Relive your favorite movies. Greetings, Starfighter. You have been recruited by the Star League to defend the frontier against Sur and the Kodan Armada. Sprinkle with some new indie music. But it must be pretty cool to be you. Blend a little. Download now from griffinsguide.com. G-R-Y-P-H-O-N-S-G-U-I-D-E dot com. Griffins! <laughs> well, the Griffins Guide is a very interesting podcast from Australia. The uh, people who do the podcast, Sly and Lynn Griffin, are very attractive, very uh, humorous. Um, the format is sort of open. There's a lot of uh, gaming content, but there's also some non-gaming content. Um, one of the segments that is one of my favorites is one called um, I Hate George, where Lynn basically interviews a friend of hers who hates George, and she explains why. So uh, that's fun. And... Also, Lynn occasionally will go through a um, a lot of movies and just sort of retell them in her own special way. And it really just, I mean, not only does it sometimes crack me up, but it also makes me feel like getting those old movies down off the shelf and dusting them off and, and seeing them again. So uh, it's a fun, it's a very fun podcast. And... Every so often you get to learn obscure topics, um, especially about like Australian animals and such. So that's, that's really kind of something you don't get anywhere else.
This is the part of the podcast where I talk about kids and gaming. Now, there are plenty of people who are already interested in getting their kids into gaming. I'm not really addressing this to them. I'm talking today to those of you who are gamers, but who haven't yet done anything to encourage kids to play role-playing games. Why the heck not? Do you need more encouragement? Kids today need this kind of experience more than ever. You might say to yourself, why should I bother? Nobody took the time and energy and effort to do anything to get me into gaming. Why should I help anyone else get started? Well, let me tell you, the more the merrier. The more gamers that exist, the better everything will be. The more that we share gaming goodness with the next generation, the better time we'll all have. Why is that? Well, let me lead you through it. The more people who play, the more money people spend on the industry. The more money people spend, the greater the chance that brilliant game designers will be paid handsomely to design better games. It's a virtuous circle that just results in better and better experiences for all of us. Is that not enough for you? Okay, how about this? Out of more and better role-playing games, we're going to get the basis for so many more better and more interesting fiction, movies, and video games which will then, in turn, generate more and more participants. That and the fact that more gamers that are initiated at a young age, the better chance that they will bring their kids into gaming, which will perpetuate the hobby. I personally plan on retiring to the old gamer's home. I am going to convalesce in a special nursing home designed for gamers, like myself. We'll spend hours playing our favorite games, putting them together, running them, Designing better ones, maybe, just maybe, if you're good and you help me out and help out kids, I'll send you an invite. It'll be the closest thing to Gamers Heaven on Earth, and you'll be my guest. May it be so. Up next is the Brookback Balrog column with Alan Braden. I want to first apologize for the quality of sound in this particular piece. And I'd also like to say that, for the record, Alan is not a computer simulation of a gay man. He is an actual gay man, uh, despite what he may sound like. So without any further ado, this is Alan with his column. some gaming experience that Sam doesn't have. 
gaming from the gay perspective. Most straight gamers don't think much about the relation of RPGs to being gay or lesbian, and as such, these issues can surprise you if you've never taken a moment to think it out. I'm here to give you that moment. Unless you've been living under a rock for the past decade, you can't help but to have noticed the way that being gay has gone from something folks whispered about in private to something folks whisper about loudly on TV and in the movies. This being 2006, there are no less than three movies nominated for Oscars this year that contain gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender themes, including the film I'm stealing tonight's title from, Brokeback Mountain. Briefly, the premise that has everyone riled up about Brokeback is that it features icons of heterosexuality, namely a couple of cowboys, engaged in a same-sex love affair. A lot of people who are upset at this movie are upset because they never stop to think about the idea of cowboys being gay. Certainly not as far back as the 1960s. But I'm here to tell you, boys and girls, that there were, and there are to this day, gay cowboys and lesbian cowgirls. Fine. Whatever. How does this apply to gaming? That's what you're asking me now. Let me reply by asking you this beginner's gamer's question. What is a role-playing game? You probably know this one by heart. Let's say it together. A role-playing game is one where the characters adopt the roles of fictitious characters in order to interact with others in a productive and entertaining way. So, how might you describe a person who is gay or lesbian when they have not yet come out of the closet? Hmm. Someone adopting a fictitious role in order to interact with others in a productive way. Notice I didn't say entertaining. Playing Eberron with D20 is entertaining. Playing Vampire the Masquerade from White Wolf is entertaining. Having to pretend that you're straight because you're afraid of violence possibly being committed against you if you don't, that has no entertainment value in it at all, trust me. Thankfully, more and more people are coming to realize that there is nothing wrong with being other than heterosexual, just as it is okay to be other than right-handed. This means that as the RPG community continues and grows, so does the likelihood that someone you game with may be gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. But to get back to gaming, we've established that people develop skills in role-playing because they have had, had to in order to fit in with a larger crowd. So you think maybe some of these same people know a little something about how to play a character for a tabletop game? Yeah, maybe. So, gays may have some game. So what? Well, like I just said before, there have always been gay cowboys out on the range. Just as there have always been gay cops, gay soldiers, gay priests, and even gay kings. Now, if you don't believe me on this, go Google it yourself. I'm not going to waste time talking about it right now. Today, people of so-called alternative sexualities can be found in just about any occupation. To me, this sounds like a pretty impressive grab bag of a lot of possible characters and settings for any RPG. This gives us players who know something about adopting roles, a historical precedent for including places in our games for people who want to rescue the Fair Prince as much as the Fair Princess. But will they want to? Well, if it's a good game, yeah. Look, I've played characters who were straight. I've played characters who were gay. I've never played a female character. And, frankly, I've never felt the urge to. But that's always been my personal choice. I'm very comfortable with my masculinity, which is something my husband will tell you. On the other side, I've had bad gaming experiences as a gay man. 
I had game masters assume that I would have no interest in saving damsels in distress. I have been I have been verbally harassed at the gaming table for my sexual orientation. Oh, some of it was a good, clean fun. Other times, not so much. Gay gamers will not swing their sword with a limp wrist unless they make that decision for their characters. Likewise, a lesbian gamer might decide that the Xena dominatrix look doesn't fit her idea of a playable character. Just like when anyone who plays the game and discovers the character, we are informed how the character acts as we play them. Now, in my history, I have run games predominantly for straight people. I think this is simply a matter of numbers, and it doesn't worry me too much. And yes, I have created gay NPCs, and one of them was incredibly flamboyant, uh, a cleric who would have made Jack from Will and Grace look like a hell's angel. But that was also his cover. While people were busy rolling their eyes at my flaming cleric, they weren't watching as he was spying out secrets for his patron church. And that church benefited greatly from his play acting. Oh, and in case you didn't notice the precedent there, I just ripped off the Scarlet Pimpernel. True story. The larger lesson is this. Just because stereotypes are available for play doesn't mean we have to use them the way they're presented to us. Meanwhile, for you game refs out there, I have to point out that the purpose of any character sexuality in an RPG is to open up plot points. It is up to the game master to decide how each culture at large feels about such things and what situations players will get into that cause them to relate to this information. Better yet, Different cultures in the same nation can have different viewpoints coexisting and creating friction. Is being homosexual a little dirty secret? For decades, being gay was blackmail material. Wouldn't someone pay big money to recover evidence back from an evil underworld type? Is being homosexual a family embarrassment? Is it uh, politically threatening? It makes you wonder if the princess was kidnapped at all. Maybe she was trying to sneak out for a date and everything just got too complicated. Or maybe she was trying to escape a fraudulent marriage that she knew wouldn't work. Is being gay in your game setting utterly and completely accepted without people even blinking? If you were planning there to be a spouse or lover being held hostage by the campaign nemesis, all that changes is the target's gender. Or, simply imagine the shock when that character moves out of their native lands into a place where one of the first two examples apply. Giving someone a simple, well-met compliment can get someone into a heap of trouble. There are two things about homosexual PCs and NPCs that I would like you to remember. The first is, just because a place has rules against a certain type of behavior doesn't mean that people actually stop performing that behavior. Prohibition taught us this, certainly. And another example would be interracial marriages. Now, interracial marriage has only been legal since 1967, believe it or not. But I think it's fairly obvious that people of different backgrounds have been having sexual relations since those groups started living in close proximity to each other. Secondly, gays, lesbians, bisexuals, transgender people can be the bad guys. That's okay. We're all human, and all humans can make mistakes, and we can all decide to act like monsters. It happens. What is not right is when you decide that a character is evil only because they happen to be not straight. That's prejudicial. That's short-sighted. And frankly, that's just bad storytelling. We all know you wouldn't want to resort to that. Before I go, here are some great fantasy and fiction books to give you some ideas of how to integrate alternative sexualities into your gaming. 
Marion Zimmer Bradley's Darkover series, long considered a classic of fantasy reading, had several homosexual and bisexual characters. Mercedes Lackey had her Harold of Waldmark series, uh, that has a gay central character trying to figure out his love life and his destiny. Also check out her Vows and Honor books, which predate the entire Xena Gabriella mess we had there on TV. Um, Mrs. Lackey has a long history of including a wide diversity of characters in her works. Samuel R. Delaney, uh, Nevergonia series, I think that's how you pronounce that. Four novels. Now, Samuel can be a bit highfalutin in his writing style, but with uh, gay main characters in some of the segments, and Delaney himself being the first openly gay African-American science fiction author, this also makes his autobiography, The Motion of Light on Water, very interesting read as well. Uh, many books in the Anne McCaffrey Dragon Riders of Purton series have gay supporting characters. As a friend of mine pointed out, any writer of a blue dragon. And of course, we have to mention Anne Rice and her vampires, biting the necks of all sorts of lovers and friends since the early 70s. If you are looking for an exhaustive uh, list of books, check out the Lambda Sci-Fi recommended reading list at www.landasf.org. And that's it for my commentary. I want to thank Sam for having me over. My exit music is from the group October Project. Take care until next time, and remember, the worst thing that can happen to you in a game is nothing at all. Goodbye. This show is part of the Out of This World Entertainment on the Sci-Fi Podcast Network, tsfpn.com. Today, I'd like to talk about two tools for game design that will help you put a structure on your ideas. The first tool is the wiki. You may be familiar with a famous website called Wikipedia, and this is exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. The beauty of a wiki is that you can simultaneously read, navigate, and then edit a web page. You can create links between wiki pages very easily. And unlike other kinds of website design tools, you can create what's called an open link, which is a placeholder link to be filled in later. That way, you can indicate that more information is needed on that link without having to go ahead and write the web page affiliated with it. Let's say you're designing a D&D campaign and you have a race of ancient tree people in your game. You can make references to one of the heroes in that race by name, Link his name to a placeholder wiki page and go on. Later on, when you want to fill in more about this hero, you can go to the page created by the placeholder link and fill that information in. This helps you refer to that character again and again without having to go deeply into explaining who that character is each time. If someone is interested, they can just click on the link and find out more. This very simple expedient alone is worth having a wiki because the best 
game designers are always creating things on the fly and having to go back later and fill in the blanks in their vision. There are a few easy ways you can get into wiki technology without being an uber geek. One is downloading a free text editor called WikidPad. WikidPad is like a notepad application, but with wiki-style linking. You can also procure a wiki online that is already pre-configured and ready to go. My favorite way to do this is through editme.com, which gives you a wiki for about $5 a month. That's not too much to pay for a tool that you can use in so many different ways. There are free wikis available online, but I like the idea of paying for them because it tends to mean they won't just shut down suddenly one day. The benefit of having a wiki online is that you can have multiple people uh, accessing the information and adding to it and editing it. Very recently, one of my favorite comic strips, say, on the web, a, a comic strip by the name of Penny Arcade, created a wiki as a sideline to a story that just appeared very briefly in the comic. And they have since taken that thread and ran with it, and now it's a completely huge, full-blown game world and uh, history, and it's amazing. I'll provide links to that particular website in the show notes. Next up is mind mapping software. What mind mapping software allows you to do is to create a bubble and line diagram that can symbolize any structure you care to think of. As you create the structure, it begins to self-organize the information you're entering. You can see patterns emerge quickly, and you can convert the patterns into usable writing outlines for more design tasks. I use mind maps to create elements of plot and story, and also to explore complex interrelationships between people. They are excellent brainstorming tools as well. They provide some loose structure while at the same time allowing for dynamic organization and reorganization. You can also, in most mind mapping software, go from a mind map and create an outline from that mind map. Then you can use that outline to do your writing. My favorite mind mapping software is FreeMind off of SourceForge. It is more than enough software for your mind mapping purposes but there is a 4 software I also recommend. It's called Inspiration. And it's maddeningly expensive, slanted towards the college, university, and public school markets. Using mind maps will help you create new storylines and also decide the kind of relationships between and amongst main characters and perhaps help provide their motives and aspirations. I heartily recommend them. Sure enough, my engine gave way outside a town called Grace, South Alabama, one late night on the road. I wanted to talk a bit about religion and gaming to tell you a bit about how I put together religions in my own game world. This is the third part of the three-part religion segment that we haven't actually got to yet, but I wanted to let you know that I hadn't forgotten about it, so here we go with this particular section. 
First, I need to tell you a little bit about my world, my game world, which I've been running since I was 10. It is called Coronai, and it's spelled C-O-R-A-N-I. And that means the magical country in the native language of Farwarian. And it is a world of magic and wonder, where heroes are the focus of rascal upstart gods struggling to exist, though other powers that be wish to destroy them. There are several religions in the world. Some of them have real-world cognates, like the Keepers of the Prophet, who are very Islamic in feel. Some, however, are totally original, like the worship of the healing goddess, Oriel. My game world theology revolves around the idea, introduced in such books as Small Gods by Terry Pratchett, that gods need worshippers to stay alive. This takes it one step further. Not only do they need worshippers to survive, but in order to thrive, they have to start finding ways to wind their aspect threads into the tapestry of reality. The way they do this is by getting their power into a kind of subconscious acceptance by the mass of moral thought. The more acceptance, the more mind share, which strengthens and broadens the power of the deity. In order to be truly powerful, however, they need to make their power felt on the world the way they do that is through conduits of energy, and usually these conduits of energy terminate in a person, a living soul who is the representative of that deity. For many of the gods, this results in a priest of some kind of or, or another. The priest enters into deep communion with the deity, and in response, the deity utilizes the priest as a focus for its power. But that's not the only way a deity can make its power felt in the world. There is also the chance that the deity can gain glory through storytellers telling stories that relate to them. They're also able to cause miraculous events or create holy areas that will somehow increase their involvement with the moral world. Okay, so the religion that I'm going to talk to you about today is one that I developed for this game world, Coronai, and it is uh, somewhat game-centered, however... Uh, we'll be able to see the mythic understructure of it very shortly. The uh, religion is the Cult of Oriel, and that's spelled O-R-I-E-L-L-E. Oriel is goddess of healing, and that extends out to such topics as love, fertility, lust, sex, um, water, the ocean, and such like that. Um, that Those are her aspect threads that she uses to sort of wind her way into the tapestry of reality. And in my second podcast for the religious segment, I uh, brought up four aspects of religion. That is dogma, the priesthood, the priestly creed, the faith, and the faithful. Well, in... The Cult of Oriel, uh, dogma is fairly simple. A lot of the uh, church teachings are revealed teachings. That is to say, one lives one's life through a simple code that is self-directed. And as you live your life, you continue to do basic meditation practices, observe rituals, and tend the process of healing. As you go through your priesthood, you slowly realize that the goddess is trying to tell you something. At a certain point in time, you are asked to choose 
between one of several religious houses inside the church itself. And these houses all have to do with a specific herbal remedy. Um, they're all named after herbs. There are um, a number of ways that you can progress at, in the priesthood. One of those ways is simply just to be a temple priest and working with the public as they come through to heal them or give them advice. And then another way you can serve the goddess is by going out into the world and healing those who need it. Um, so the questions that we asked in that, in that podcast were, uh, were like this. Where did the world we live in come from? Why was it put here? Who's in charge and where did we come from? Well, the stories of the uh, cult of Oriel is that um, it that the world emerged from light and became uh, real from that, but that, you know, thinking about what happened in the far past and trying to focus on that is not relevant to the daily process of living and healing. So it doesn't really, uh, there aren't a lot of contemplative priests of Oriel who try to figure out the nature of the universe. Um, it's really not encouraged, but I mean, it's not, it's not that it's prohibited, but the religion doesn't necessarily want you to stay stuck in the past. So there is a brief mention of the beginning of the world being full of light and that out of the light, the goddess emerged from the ocean. And that's pretty much it. You know, you, you really don't need to know much more than that. Possible that the high priestesses and high priests know more. There are definitely revealed secrets as you go up the uh, hierarchy in the church. But for, for right now, that is the answer to those questions. What is right and good? What is wrong and evil? Or are there many shades of gray? Well, in this, there are very, very few shades of gray, really, for a lot of the Aurelians. Um, causing pain and harm is evil. Um, doing evil um, involves any process which is needlessly cruel or painful. Um, they do make a distinction between healing pain and the kind of pain that you uh, inflict needlessly. Uh, so they don't have a restriction against, say, cutting someone open to get an arrow out of them because although that's doing extra harm, it is also a healing process. There is a belief also that women and children should be protected and sheltered to a certain extent from uh, pain and suffering. And that free will... And the choice of partners of lovemaking and marriage is extremely important. That consent is very, very important. In fact, one might say that consent is one of the cornerstones of the Aurelian tradition because they don't even require their priests to do anything specific against their consent. The priest must consent to discipline by the church. They must consent to correction if they go wrong and if they don't consent then things are left to be worked out religiously or spiritually by the process of 
well, just sitting back and sort of watching what happens, as long as the priest isn't breaking any specific rules or is causing, especially in terms of causing pain, the priest is uh, allowed to continue causing pain and, and causing damage, harm. So, um, let's see. The other questions we have, uh, you know, that, that, that right and wrong thing, that is very clear. Now, if you just a brief moment, I wanted to say when you play a cleric of Oriel in my role playing games, you are left with some basic problems alongside of these these questions. Because, I mean, theoretically speaking, the goddess does not want you to cause harm. However, if bad, nasty monsters are attacking you and your friends to be, you know, let's just make that in the most draw that in the biggest lines possible, then it's kind of hard for you to stay alive and continue the, the goddess's work if you are not able to defend yourself. So there has been, over the course of many years, a branch of the religion which talks about protection. And in fact, the goddess has sort of expanded her powers in the direction of keeping people safe, of warding them, protecting them as best as possible. And there's even a house whose entire job is to protect and to create wards and keep uh, bad things away. So more than likely, you would probably play a priest of that protection faction. And those priests are allowed to carry weapons and wear armor and also to attack without necessarily having been attacked first, um, depending on what their discretion is. So that has an effect in the in-game play, and it's an interesting wrinkle. The next question that we used in the podcast was, what famous holy people have been part of the tradition and what did they teach what were they famous for? Well, I haven't really gone into a lot of that in my particular church. There are a few famous people, but they're only famous because they were once player characters in my game, and I uh, have named them as famous. But right now, there are a few characters who have been put forward. For, for example, the woman who discovered the magical charm of life-keeping, which is a way to say birth control. In my world, you can go to any temple of Oriel and purchase a charm that will essentially provide you with easy and free, continuous, safe birth control. This has had a major effect on the population of my world in that uh, there are not a lot of unwanted pregnancies except for those people who patently don't want to trust the magic of Oriel. And there are some people who, for whatever religious purposes, decide to not do that. But um, for the most part, people who live in cities and who live near a temple are going to be wearing one of these because unless they're on the farm and they really want to have more children, but once again, this is all about consent and uh, that's a major tenant of the Aurelian tradition. So, that woman is known to the people who are inside the religion. But really, there there haven't been a lot of messianic figures because of the tendency for the Aurelian tradition to be non-hierarchical. That is to say, they don't have typically people who are uh, in charge of other people um, as much as it is a consensus group circle 
with a certain strata concerning your level of experience and your particular reputation as a healer and so on and so forth. Uh, they don't really do a lot of idolization of the individual, um, even though they do say that individual freedoms are important and that you should be allowed to consent to whatever it is that you're a part of. So um, that covers holy people. That is to say, it doesn't really cover them, but it covers them sort of. Um, I guess you could also say that the founders of the various religious houses are important. They're very they're famous. So, how should we conduct our everyday affairs? What shall we do about money and charity? Well, clearly the church wants you to be good to each other and loving and caring. And um, as a result, they tend to come across in the general populace as being somewhat, well, I guess the best way to describe it in modern day terms is they're kind of like hippies. They want everybody to love each other and care about each other and be peaceful and loving and kind. And that's all very well and good. And, and, and actually, within the, within the temples themselves, this isn't hard to accomplish. Um, in fact, um, they, uh, they're well known for the fact that they are extremely loving and very caring to each other. Um, in fact, there's a lot of euphemistic giggling and pointing because of the presence of sex in their rituals. They don't have a great deal of sex in their rituals, but there are sexual rituals that happen throughout the year. And so as a result, people think of them as all having sex all the time. And uh, that's just not the case. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Everyday affairs, you should be loving, you should be kind, you should be peaceful Peace-loving, encourage people to consent, encourage people to, to understand who they are so they can consent, and so on. What shall we do about money and charity? Well, the Aurelian tradition is quite wealthy as a result of the sale of all these charms. They also sell their healing services to a certain extent because they will accept donations, and they also are known to... Uh, be advisors for certain kinds of uh, questions of fertility and questions of medical uh, care. So um, they have a lot of uh, money. They have a great deal of money as a church. And so as a result, they don't have to do a lot of work. You know, they have extra money that they can use to do charity work. And they have a tradition of taking children in who wish to come because once again and this is about consent and raising them inside the confines of the temple now these people who are raised in an Aurelian temple are fairly uh, shall we say soft they uh, they have sort of an unrealistic expectation of the world and in fact uh, we've had a player character who was temple born um and she was a lot of fun to, to play off of because she was kind of, uh, she just didn't understand a lot of the problem people had with, like, her taking her clothes off. Like, why is that such a big deal? Well, you know, uh, in the temple, they do that all the time, and it's not a big deal. It's not sexual, necessarily. Nobody has to worry about anyone taking uh, its sexual advantage of someone who's naked. So they don't really think about na uh, being naked. But... Um, Outside the temple, it's a different story. 
So anyway, that was a fun fun bit in our game. But yeah, they do a lot of charity work. They will they will heal you sometimes even if you have no money. Um, the, the very few Aurelian priests will, will deny healing to someone. And this is also something that gets into sort of a moral question. They will heal someone who has broken a law in the sense that if they've stolen from someone or they were a political dissident or if they they weren't necessarily harming anyone in the process as long as they were, as long as they didn't hurt anyone in the process, they will heal people even though the government probably wishes that they wouldn't. Um, having said that, they will go to great lengths to actually catch and punish people who are rapists and child molesters. So there is that wrinkle, and it's sort of a, it sounds like it might be a contradiction, but for them, the idea of anyone uh, forcing sex on someone or, or using sex as a violent weapon is anathema, and they will do anything to stop it. Well, that's the podcast segment for religion for today. Next week, we will continue this segment, the second half. Um, It ran along, so I wanted to make sure you had everything in it. And uh, next week, we will talk more about the religion of Oriel and give you a chance to give us some feedback. Thanks very much. The Bears Grove calls for your feedback, kudos, and or participation. Send an audio file or email us at bearsgrove at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail at 206-888-2327. Leave us comments at the show blog at bearsgrove.blogspot.com. Place yourself and send us a shout-out at our Frapper Map. Participate in our online forum at thegamingpodcastnetwork.com. Visit our Cafe Press store to purchase a Bears Grove t-shirt. As always, we're grateful for any feedback you can give us. If you don't want your comments read on the show, please let us know. The Bears Grove podcast number nine is released to you via a very happy Creative Commons 2.0 License, which will read attribution, no derivative, no commercial use. As always, we have music. The music will be listed in the show notes. It is from the Podsafe Music Network. Kudos to Fumitaki Anzai, who always supplies uh, lovely music for our introduction. And the rest, uh, of course, we have a resurgence of Just Add Beans. Um, and there'll be another uh, series of links in the show notes for the rest of the music. And tonight we'll end up with the music from the Lascivious Biddies, my one of my very favorite new bands. They uh, have a lovely song called Betty. I'd like to thank the contributors of this podcast, Alan Braden, and my family who put up with me while I was uh, putting it together. So I hope to see you again in seven days for our superhero edition. I hope you like it. Until then, sweet dreams when you get them. I know a girl named Betty who wears patent leather shoes. She just moved from Missouri and she's feeling kind.
says hey, hey, hey to the vendor at parking 81st. A good day, good day to the mailman as she passes and she sees the city glowing in the morning. And she feels that she might burst. I know a wife named Betty who wears alligator boots. She stays out all night dancing and she likes to play the blues. She says hey to her ballet as she rolls in at 6 a.m. A good day, good day to her husband as he rolls his eyes. Getting up for work, putting on a smirk. Cause he knows that Betty City, it comes first. Betty likes to watch the city wake up as the sun glows. Betty likes to watch the city wake up And she knows that she could lie here Happy and free And all that she could be Betty likes to watch the city wake up And the city says, hey, hey, hey Betty likes to watch the city wake up and 